away or not bother? Yep, okay. Uh, this is actually going to be a topical sermon, so we won't be looking at all the details of that passage read from Matthew. So if you have questions, <clears throat> questions about that particularly challenging ending, you can talk to Pastor Rob at another, at another time. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, yeah. But um, we usually do verse-by-verse teaching, but this was a series. Uh, earlier in the year, our network decided to uh, do a, a, a three-part series on gospel friendship, and I had the middle one, not, not making new friends, and then the third one was Jesus is your best friend, but I had the middle one of strengthening and galvanizing existing gospel friendships. So that's what this is about. <clears throat> I'll pray, but uh, before I do... Um, uh, just a quick note, for those of you yesterday who still had questions from the seminar, or if you have questions about uh, today's message, uh, can all hang out afterwards, and uh, hopefully you can get, we can get to your questions So th- after service. Thanks. Why don't I briefly pray? <clears throat> Lord, we rely on you in so many ways. We take our next breath for granted, and uh, we take clear throats for granted. Give, uh, pray you'd give my voice clarity so there can be building up today. But Lord, we also take forgiveness for granted and friendship for granted far too often. So fill us with joy of uh, gospel friendship now and equip us to that end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I might be occasionally sipping a cup of peppermint tea. Very classy addition to have peppermint tea. An old poet put it really well when he said, of all the heavenly gifts that mortal men commend, what trusty treasure in the world can outweigh a friend? And not just any friend, because I think all of us have been bit by the painful disappointment of the fair weather friend, right, who really lets us down when things get tough. Proverbs contrast the fair weather friend with a friend for all seasons, when it says, a friend loves at all times. One with many fair-weather friends may be harmed, but there is a true friend who stays closer than a brother. And that's what we're going to be looking at today uh, as we consider gospel friendships, Christian friendships to lean on and point our gaze Christward together. Uh, what is Friendship. It's not always defined, it can be described, Uh, but this is one of the things Jesus said about the difference between a servant and a friend. He said, a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends because I've made known my father's will to you. So, genuine friendship is not just being an acquaintance. So it's not just, yeah, I know that guy at work, he's my friend. Uh, Friendship is transparency of meaningful disclosure of substance, of of personal matters. Yes, the insignificant, but also the insignificant, your hopes and plans, your your burdens and dreams. So uh, genuine friendship looks beyond the mechanical, uh, the functional, the superficial. Uh, the opposite of what we're going to see now in a satire uh, called Shallow Small Groups. We don't really want to do life together. 
frankly, at Shallow Small Group, we try not to do much of anything at all. You'll never hear us use the term, unpack that thought. We're sure it's packed away for a really good reason. And you'll never hear us use the term accountability unless you're talking about someone who deals with numbers. Hey dude, thanks for doing my taxes. You have great accountability. We hate bad theology as much as the next guy. And we know the surest way to prevent bad theology is to avoid theology altogether. And outreach? This is the only outreach you'll ever have to do. Some people say we're superficial. But hey, the word supers and superficial. I mean, who doesn't want to be super? Shallow small group. Because when things get too deep, people drown. Yep, that's, uh, that's not what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about going deep in gospel transparency and commitment with real friends. Uh, someone to know and understand you, and hopefully you to know them, to journey through life with. I hope you want friends to actually even do the, the tough love stuff, to pull you back when you're morally wandering when your faith is wavering, when your marriage is struggling. Someone not just to like drag you back against your will, kicking and screaming, but a friend who is a magnetic draw to lift your gaze to Christ and hunger for the right kind of living and loving. So the main idea that we're going to consider today is that gospel friendship is galvanized by giving rather than getting. doesn't mean it's not great to, to get. It's wonderful to receive gifts and be someone's friend, but our focus is more on being and how to become a better gospel friend. Uh, now, this reflects the love of God. The idea of giving is better than getting because as we saw yesterday, God loves the unlovely rebels like us. See, God so loved the world, he gave his son. Christ so loved uh, the, the church, he gave himself. And God's love has been poured out on the Holy Spirit given to us. Love is about giving. And therefore, because a gospel friend loves at all times, yesterday we considered this definition of love that uh, it's, it's sacrificially giving oneself for the benefit of others, whether they deserve it or not. And so our commitment to that is what we're facing today. <clears throat> uh, so we're not ignoring the general command. Jesus says, love your enemies. Like, we are to love everybody, but we're talking about those special friendships and relationships. Um, close friends and uh, th that we trust to speak into our lives when we need it and to speak into theirs. And I don't know if you've heard of a, a psychologist named Robin Dunbar, and he came up with a number, and his argument is this, as far as the maximum amount of significant, rela any meaningful relationship, anything called a relationship of any sort, the most you can have is 150. After that, it's all white noise and Facebook friends and like whatever, right? But we're going to be focusing today in our talk at that at that. 15, even more towards the five, but the 15 to five range uh, of the really, really close friends. Um, if you're married, your spouse should be your best friend. Uh, yet, there are many things, blokes, you'd know that you only tell another bloke. And there's other things, uh, Sheila's, you'd only tell another Sheila, right? Um, 
And so single or married, the, the, we're talking about principles of sort of bloke to bloke and Sheila to Sheila kind of friendship. Not, not so much marriage, but hey, if this is reflected in marriage, absolutely awesome, but this is for everybody. Uh, not a comprehensive list that I put up here, but I trust these will strengthen and develop and galvanize gospel friendship. A, a giving gospel friend has four qualities that I'm highlighting. A frequent forgiver, a wise wordsmith, a scripture student, and the last bit, really, that's the conclusion, a diligent doer rather than a separate point. <clears throat> and the order's pretty important. So let's consider the first one, the frequent forgiver. This is really important right out of the gate because expectations are such a big thing in relationships. Uh, they really are what you expect from people. Uh, friends are not your Messiah. They are not your Savior, and we can't expect them to be, but they point us to Jesus. We can't expect them to be Jesus. Godly friends will let you down, so expect it. Paul and Barnabas were the missionary dream team. We're going through the book of Acts. These guys took on the, the Roman Empire with the gospel Nonetheless, they had a, what Scripture calls a sharp disagreement. It was a disagreement about mission and strategy, but it's serious enough for the dream team of missions to actually part ways. In God's providence, one went by land, one went by sea, and they divided and conquered for the gospel. But they were godly men, Paul and Barnabas, and they actually broke paths. So if our expectation is that a friend should never really disappoint us. We're in for a world of pain and hurt because we're setting up unbiblical expectations and we will hold enormous grudges. And holding enormous grudges quenches the spirit in our, uh, in our lives. That allows us to uh, stoke up uh, the fire of gossip and the acid to burn and erode in us. It ruins our testimony to the world, but it also enslaves the unforgiver. Nancy Lee DeMoss, in her really excellent book called Choosing Forgiveness, she recounts this, oh, this heart-rending story of this young lady who had a terrible offense committed against her in a jail cell. And many years later, she opened up to her small group, because it was not a shallow small group, and uh, she told these church friends, she said, in my heart, I put him in jail that day, and all these years, I've kept him in that prison. But when God finally texts like that one in Matthew 18 and exposed her eyes to sort of see her own sin as she grew in grace and see, saw her own sin more deeply, she saw how that unforgiveness affected her and her marriage and her relationships. And this is then what she realized that she also shared with her non-shallow small group. She said, though that man was now long dead, Unforgiveness and bitterness had kept me locked there in a cell of my own making. See, for everyone's sake, God wants us to forgive. What is forgiveness? Well, well it means two things. Objectively, legally, it means to release, to set free from liability or debt. 
subjectively, personally, relationally, it means to be freed from resentment, from holding that debt in your heart over someone. So forgiveness frees both the villain and the victim. And it's, so therefore, it's a beautiful thing in God's grace. But God doesn't just want us to forgive. God commands us to forgive. <clears throat> we saw and heard, or heard in that passage, and Peter's asking Jesus, and he's, like, he's sort of, you know, the, the rabbis had a principle that three times you would forgive someone, and after that, right? So Peter sort of, so Lord, how many times should we forgive? Uh, up to seven? <laughs> and and, uh, and, and Peter's, uh, Jesus is just like, oh, you, you just, you're not even starting to get it. He says, no, 70 times seven. And if he sins you seven times in a day, you, and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. That's a whole new level. You see, a gospel friend is a frequent forgiver seven times in a day or more. And let's admit, due to closeness of relationship, the pain is sharper when a friend hurts us. But should not the forgiveness be stronger and deeper and more eager because they're a friend? See, as mutual sinners doing the nitty-gritty of life together, uh, there is so much opportunity to offend a friend. I mean, when you think about it, it's legion. There's unintentional ways we can offend friends, uh, different personality types. Uh, I'm learning that as a creative, spontaneous type, quite unintentionally, um, as an extrovert, I often embarrass my introverted friends and um, sort of starting to realize that slowly. And uh, I'm still learning, and I'm a think out loud, again, spontaneous brainstorm. Let's brainstorm together and come up with ideas. And I often quite unintentionally frustrate my focused, linear, structural friends who often interpret my, hey, let's consider this as a plan to execute, and yet there's no plan right? And I'm like, well, of course there's no plan. It was just an idea. We were brainstorming, right? Different personality types and much, much more. So much opportunity to miscommunicate and unintentionally just hurt each other and offend each other. Then there's de the deliberate cutting words when we're in a dark place having a bad day. Oh. And we get caught up in navel-gazing pity, just blame others. You know, especially when we're let down by friends, we're tempted to become the Lone Ranger. Now, he's an American, standalone, independent. He doesn't need anybody. Well, eventually he got Tonto, but that's for another day. Uh, but he's trying to do life on his own. And that is not wise, and that is not biblical, and that is not why the church exists, right? We need one another to build one another up with many gifts, as we saw yesterday. So I, I really appreciate, C.S. Lewis put it so well. He said, my own eyes are not enough for me. I need the eyes of others. 
You see, others can see things in our lives that we're blind to. We've all got blind spots. And when we're maybe about to make shipwreck of a relationship or a job or shipwreck the faith or just make a stupid decision that's big, friends have eyes to see that. But you know what? It's only friends that will probably listen to. The world could know it. Oh, there goes Dave again, you know. But I'm only going to listen to people that I trust, right? And so that's why we need to develop a, a, a network of people that we trust. And that's why we need to be frequent forgivers. Now, the way we do this practically so that we maintain and continue trust through, through forgiveness, there, there's at least two things. So this is just very briefly. We tend to fixate on the, the speck, right? Like Jesus talks, or, or a molehill, the moment, Oh, how could they? Can you believe they said, you know? The Lord wants us to look past the moment and see the big picture. And uh, I think fixating on two, two questions, what has made this person such a close friend? Why, why do they mean so much to me? Why is our friendship of value? And see, when you think about that, you're, you're lifting your gaze past the, the, the little speck, the molehill, and, and you're being renewed, and that's a meaningful, godly relationship you should thank God for, right? And then even most importantly, looking above that, is Jesus has forgiven all my sins, and that's what that's par- that parable is about, that if somebody has a little molehill of a sin, I need to take my gaze off that, and I need to say, here's my Mount Everest of sin, and it just goes as high as the sky is, and Jesus has taken that whole thing and thrown it into the sea. Wow. If I consider my sins and I consider my Savior and what He's done, I renew that, oh yeah, that's right, they did that to me. Yeah, I should, I should talk, I'll forgive them and I should, maybe if I need to, talk to them and see if we can prevent that from happening again. Let all bitterness be removed from you, forgiving one another just as God has forgiven you in Christ. That is the sweet song. That verse is the sweet song that's going to drown out the harsh song of the world that says, even when the jury and the judge say you've got a right to hold a grudge, it's the whisper in the ear that says, free, forgiveness, set it free. Rejoice in the Lord. Friends, don't let friends go unforgiven. Okay? Now, before we go to our next point, is we, uh, we do need to remember the cost of hurting friends. It, <laughs> even forgiven friends, uh, sorry, even forgiven sins have consequences. The Bible is legion with, yeah, you're forgiven, but unfortunately that means this or that, right? It doesn't mean there's no consequences from sin. And so, I just want us to think through forgiveness and trust briefly. Forgiveness and trust are different. See, forgiveness can be granted immediately if someone is willing to forgive, and fully, full forgiveness, instant. Trust is built slowly, is it not? You don't just necessarily open up to people straight away. Um, And trust is rebuilt slowly when it's broken. I reckon as I say that, you might have a name or two or a friend or two coming to mind that, that possibly had hurt you.
Uh, an old English proverb says, God, spare me from my friends. I can take care of my enemies, right? The meaning there is with enemies, we've got our guard up. We've got our, 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 our you know, armor on, but with friends, we're, we're just exposed and we're laid bare and it, it just, it shocks us. And, and so it, it hits us hard. Uh, but to this proverb, uh, I'm talking about now preventative medicine here, right? Uh, forgiveness is the healing medicine, but preventative medicine God, spare me from me so I can spare my friends, right? So the takeaway, oh yeah, uh, Dave said, uh, you got to forgive your friend. So um, boom, you got to forgive me. <laughs> no, it's let's spare one another from ourselves <laughs> so we can bless each other, okay? Now, <clears throat> we move on to the wise wordsmith. What do I mean? Uh, well, I don't mean... Shakespearean in an eloquent use of words like that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm not talking about art. I'm talking about heart. In the words that we use and care about. So this is even more so now, uh, not the pr- uh, corrective medicine of forgiveness, but the preventative medicine of wise words. And this is this is what it should look like, Paul says in Colossians. Let your speech always be what? Gracious, seasoned with salt. That's tasteful. Mm. Even if it's not good for me, those vegetables you're serving up, uh, that tough love, it's seasoned with salt, right? That you may know how you should answer each person. What should come out of your mouth, Ephesians says, only what is good for building up someone in need again so that it can give grace for those who hear. Grace isn't like cheesy warm fuzzies. Grace trains us, the Bible says, to deny ungodliness and to live righteously and sensibly in this age, right? It's God's grace. It's holistic. It's, it's love in action to the unlovely and the undeserving. The prophet Isaiah really gets to the heart of, of what I mean by wise wordsmith, by that phrase. This is uh, it's from a translation called the New American Standard. Uh, it says, the sovereign Lord has given me the tongue of a disciple that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. Have you seen this theme of sustaining and building up friends of the faith? Brothers and sisters, pray that God would give you the tongue of a disciple. The word disciple is a learner. That's what the word means. Always learning, always teachable, and therefore always thinking, how am I speaking to my friends? What can I learn about building people up better? What does this look like in practice, in friendship? Uh, Three things I'll ask you to consider. The first is just a question. Do you give careful consideration and thought to what you say and what you write to especially your friends? Do you think through, how will those words be received? Uh, Will the intention of what I mean be clear? Am I just going to rip it out mechanically and be prone to misinterpretation and potentially hurting others? 
one of the challenges I face, they don't tell you in Bible college, you have to do so much communication outside of this pulpit as a pastor. <clears throat> and inside, I just want to rip out emails and have quick phone calls, bullet points, action points, get things done, ba-boom. And I have made so many mistakes in hurting people over the years that, okay, I'll just rip out a two-minute email, and then I've got to have a 15-minute phone call <laughs> to heal the damage I've unintentionally done because I've not been a wise wordsmith. And I mean, it's not just the past, it's, it's anybody in any place. We can be prone to that. And I've learned it's far better to take six, seven, eight minutes to thoughtfully craft what you're going to write and to maybe express some thanksgiving for what's being done already and, and to think, how will this build up and that's better for them, and selfishly, it's better for me. See, six minutes uh, rather than three plus 15, <laughs> or an hour, or a follow-up meeting to heal a broken uh, relationship. So, Christian criticism is always constructive. It's always to build up, right, as we've seen. So, it's solution-oriented. Now, one crucial lesson I've learned the hard way under this that I'll share, and the hard way, numerous times, I'm McFly, I'm slow to learn, okay? Uh, when you can, I know there's times you have to at work, I'm not talking about the workplace where you have to do a job performance interview and somebody if getting a warning, I'm, not talk I'm talking about friends, I'm talking about close gospel friends, okay? Leave criticism even constructive criticism for verbal feedback, and put encouragement in print. And when I say print, that includes text, social media, anything that is kept that can be read and reread and reread. <laughs> you see, what happens if spiteful words are written down and given to somebody? What do you do with those? We should. We should like learn from it, tear it up, throw it away, and learn. That's what we should do, and try to. Re but what do we usually do? Read it again and again and again. How dare can you believe what you know? And we gossip, and so put constructive writing in print so that can be read again and again to bless. Second, be a good listener. Okay. Allow me to share a part of, and especially men, I think, need to listen to this one, but uh, this is a part of Isaiah 50, verse 4. I left off previously. Here it is. Give me the tongue of a disciple. Now I'd build, build the weary one up with the word. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple, as a learner. Now, that's first listening to God's word as a prophet. He says that, but second, it's listening to others. It's listening to your friend. James provides us, you know, there's the people that are, uh, for lack of a better phrase, they verbally vomit, right? Um, yeah, hi, my name is so-and-so, and, -so, and uh, you know, blah, 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 and it's like, whoa, I just met you, and I know, like, your entire life story and a lot of bad stuff. Um, James gives us a, uh, I guess, a biblical breath mint for verbal vomit, if we're those prone to talk and not prone to hear and listen. He says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. And that's just downright hard. 
if you're probably a male and if you're extroverted, if you're me and Rob, that's downright hard, right? <laughs> Quick to listen, slow to speak. Friends listen to friends. Uh, friends don't jump to conclusions. Sometimes the best way to illustrate what it means to listen well is to illustrate the opposite. Okay? So I'm going to show you our second video clip of the morning. Um, before I do, I'll introduce it. His name is Jordan Peterson. He's a Canadian psychologist. In a uni lecture, he's been a burr in the saddle to the politically correct movement because, um, well, just one way, he actually argues for promoting equal opportunity for men and women rather than enforcing equal proportions in the workplace of men and women because, like, one in 20 men want to be a nurse. One in 20 women want to be an engineer. So if you force 10-10, he's like, you're going to have a lot of unhappy people. He's, a, he's actually quite a clever guy. I hope he comes to know Jesus. But let's watch how not to listen to him as he is interviewed uh, by, it's a famous little interview, it's only like 30 seconds from it, from a lady called Kathy Newman. So you're saying, well, just listen instead of, instead of assuming, okay? Jordan Peterson, you're saying you've done your research and women are unhappy dominating men. I didn't say they were unhappy dominating men. You're I just saying that's the way it is. Well, it's, I'm not saying anything. But you're anything. saying basically it doesn't matter if women aren't getting to the top. You're saying, well, that's just a fact of not life. Saying women it aren't necessarily matter. going to get to the top. No, I'm not saying it doesn't matter either. You're saying, and you're saying if you it's at the cost of men, that's a problem. That is so untrue that it's almost unbelievable. I fought to get where I've got. That's fine. I think you, more power to you as far as I'm concerned. You're saying that women aren't intelligent enough? No, I'm not saying that at all. <laughs> Here's the reality. If you do not listen to someone, they will not consider you their friend. Remember that and don't be that person, okay? Be a good listener and be a good questioner. This is so important. Be a wise question asker. The older I've gotten, see, early on, I just think, oh, dispense some truth, sprinkle some scripture, bling, 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 and there it is. And, uh, and then I'd say, you good? Is that right? Yep. Yes, no. Closed-ended questions. Do you understand? Yes, no. That's a closed-ended question. It can be answered yes, no. It's very quantitative, not qualitative. Uh, did you do that? Yes, no. How many days did you read your Bible this week? Right? Quantity. Yes, no. Numbers. If you do that a lot, especially with deeper things, people are going to tend to feel thumbed down, judged, examined all the time. Open-ended questions actually encourage someone to open up. It's probably why they're called open-ended questions, and they're more qualitative-focused. Listen to the difference. How many days did you read your Bible this week? How has God been encouraging you in your hope from reading His Word this week? Can you sense the difference? Yeah, we need closed-ended questions at work and, and accountability. We need somebody. Disproportionate amount shuts people down. So what I'd encourage you to do is more often than ask how rather than how many, okay? So 
How has forgiveness been expressed in your marriage this week? Rob, I've been praying for you. Because you asked me, how has forgiveness been expressed in your marriage this week? As opposed to how many times did you ask April, forgive me, you know, <laughs> which is probably a lot. <laughs> but, but. And also, instead of saying, did you ask how, or sorry, what did such and such look like? What did your time with God alone look like last week? See, that's just inviting, oh, some days were like this, other days were like this. See, don't sound like Dr. Phil. Don't be, you know, don't be playing a game. Just be a friend. Just, but, but helping to think through that as a wise wordsmith can be very insightful. And Jesus is the master of open-ended questions. What did you go out into the desert to see, he asked. Why are you going to see John the Baptist? What, what, what are you afraid of? Why do you doubt? Who do you say that I am? See, again and again, he's just drawing people in. So being a friend, if I could sum this up, it's, it's, it's not about superficial pleasantries like shallow, small groups. Being a friend is not being nice, which is uh, nothing in me cares enough to say what really needs to be said, right? But being bold is the burden of loving discipleship. See, that's finding a way to say what needs to be said in a loving, wise way. So, some questions for the toolbox, and this is where things in the order tends to build together for if we are being this kind of a frequent forgiver and a wise wordsmith, then the appreciation of what Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. See, then we now have a platform to actually speak into lives in a, in a more challenging, lovingly confronting way when it needs to happen. So uh, to help people avoid spiritual shipwrecks. So the last point is a gospel friend must be a scripture student. So it's not, it's not just about us and our wisdom. It's about God and His wisdom and His way to live. All the tools in the world... Uh, being gracious while listening, asking clever questions. They'll build up no one if there isn't God's truth supporting uh, the person, right? And supporting the content of what we share. So we don't just need the tongue of a disciple, we need the truth of a disciple. And that's what this one's about. Not comprehensively. Everybody's growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. You don't have to be a scripture expert. It's not what this is saying. But accurate in what you know. So it's sharpening one another. And, and I could say it this way. If friends don't let friends uh, drink and drive, or drink drive, I should say it the Aussie way, uh, friends don't let friends, gospel friends don't let gospel friends twist Scripture. Okay? Gospel friends don't let friends twist Scripture. And, and there's, a, there's a hymn by uh, a poet um, named William Cowper who put it like this. He said, of all... Uh, sagacious is like a wise guy. Of all art, sagacious dupes invent to cheat themselves and gain the world's assent. The worst is scripture warped from its intent. That's so well put. And uh, 
I want to give the benefit of the doubt. In our soundbite age, a lot of people are biblically illiterate, and so we give friends the benefit of the doubt and don't just assume that they're sinning defiantly immediately. So the, the burden here is don't be an arrogant interpreter, sort of like a truth Nazi. Hey, did you parse that in the Greek before you quoted that verse? Or, you know, like that kind of stuff. Um, the burden is to help prevent spiritual shipwreck. See, it's to hold back those going to slaughter. And recently I've realized how important it is to read Scripture in context, to help friends with Scripture when they are using Scripture in dangerous ways for themselves. Uh, See, there's a commonly used phrase today, you probably have heard it, Um, this is what this means, sorry, I opened my Bible, this is what this means to me, okay? Now, hopefully what they're saying is, what they mean is, this is how the text, this is how I'm trying to apply the text, right? Uh, Because the text means something to everyone, right? Christ died for the ungodly to bring us to God. That means the same thing to everybody. The question is, how will you apply it, right? Will you apply it? Um, So hopefully, but, but so... What, what I'd like us to think about is the meaning before we get to the applying, because the only way we can know we're applying the text, the truth rightly, is if we get the text and the truth right. Otherwise, we might do the opposite of what it says. And, and I, I want to illustrate this rather personally, this, this habit... I, I was back in the States last, last year, and I experienced this with, with friends and family, and we sat down at the lunch table, and I saw, I saw generally how true this was, because I just asked a question after the, after the sermon, we went home, we had lunch, and I said, hey, what did you guys think was, was the, the main meaning of the passage? And three people right after that, they're, I love them, they're rallies, they're Christians, they said, well, this is, what, this is what it meant to me, and this is what I took away right? That's fine. Let's get there. But I didn't ask, what did you take away? I actually, asked, I actually said this. I said, I, thanks for all that, but I asked a different question. What do you think the main point of the passage was? Because, see, we got to get that and then take it away. And we have a tendency to just bypass meaning and go to meaning to me application. Uh, now, an acute illustration of this is more painful. See, somebody in America that's close to me, decided that they were going to fast. And uh, they were going to fast not just from food, but they were also fasting from drinking water and from sleeping, right? And which is a quick, that's a recipe for a quick death, right? And so I said, hey, how did you, I tried to be a wise wordsmith. I wanted to say, you numbskull, what, right? That's why, that's, but okay. I love this guy. Um, Say, how did you come to that decision? Walk me along your decision-making path. And he said, well, um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I said, well, do you think that's what Paul was talking about in in Philippians 4 when he said that? And he said, well, really, uh, the main one was Psalm 121. Uh, What's that? Um, Well, he said, it's the Lord does not sleep or slumber. And so I said, okay, so I'm trying to understand, so because you're not the Lord, 
So, whoops, sorry. Uh, I think I have this up here. Oh, maybe I don't have this verse, or I have the next one, because uh, it gets worse. Um, <laughs> the Lord doesn't sleep or something, but because you're not the Lord, how does that then apply to you? And he's just, he just sort of babbled, and I said, well, what do you think the main point of Psalm 121 is? Like, let's get back to Psalm 121 that you're quoting. Because he said, oh, I don't know. And I said, so I had to point it out. And I said, well, it says, here's the main point. God is called the protector of Israel, and therefore he will protect you so you can rest. See, God doesn't sleep so that you can. A lot of Psalms say that. Psalm 3, I will lie now, not be afraid. Uh, I will not be afraid of a thousand people who take, because the Lord sustains me, I will lie down, right? And so I try, okay, so your application is the ex- exact opposite of the meaning of the passage, right? And, and then he said, well, look, you know, there's one other thing. He, he quoted John 6 in the feeding of the 5,000, right? No one who comes to me will ever be hungry or thirsty again, so... See, friends don't let friends twist Scripture because this was, this was a troublesome moment, right? This is where we've got to, okay, we've got to say something here. And again, I had to walk him through, what do you think that means? What do you think that verse means in context? And if I paraphrase, the, he just literally fed 5,000 years to paraphrase, you came to me for a free lunch and a full belly. Mm-hmm. Seek the free sorry, seek a a full soul and the free gift of eternal life. And that is myself freely by grace offered up for you. And you will never look elsewhere for eternal life. That's what it means. Jesus told us what it means. And so I had to tell you, this is my, away from my paraphrase, that's the text right there. Um, Everybody's eating. <laughs> Nobody's not eating. Uh, and, and it's about the parallel of you, you eat from me. Uh, it, that means to believe in me and you will have eternal life. See, partaking of spiritual food satisfies our spiritual hunger and thirst. Everyone in this passage ate literal food. The wise ate spiritual food of Jesus, but everyone was eating. So I had to say to my friend, can you see again how your application is the exact opposite of the meaning of the text? It's painful, but friends, don't let friends twist Scripture. So let's, let's be those friends. And can I encourage you with, um, and this is less a ministry of the pulpit thing. It's more a ministry of the pew, of, of everybody. Uh, it's a shameful plug to get involved in small group discipleship to, to refine one another. See, if, if I see all these each ones speaking the truth, iron sharpening iron, this is pew ministry. I mean, it includes pulpit ministry, but the one another's, the majority of the one another's are in the pew, not in the pulpit, and at home, <laughs> etc. So um, if, if we considered brekkie our personal devotions, okay? That's our, our self-feeding. And then if we considered the Sunday sermon like going to a restaurant where it's plated up for you, uh, prepared for you, and hope, it, it is in the end, though, spoon-feeding. 
It's doing the work for you, right? Hopefully lovingly, hopefully truthfully. Um, Taught by someone else on my own. You know what a great middle ground is? All these one and others. Keeping with the analogy, it's cooking class. Okay, small group is where together we can learn and sharpen one another about dialogue over the scripture. Hey, where did you get that from the text? You know, the, like, oh, I really think this is saying blah, blah, blah. You're sort of like, whoa, what do I say with that? You say, oh, hey, where did you find that in the text? So we're, we're helping each other look at scripture and, and build our lives on scripture rather than, you know, sort of whatever. And... Uh, a really encouraging method. I don't know what you guys do, but the coma method, what a great name. Go to sleep forever. <laughs> no, but it's, hey, let's first look at the context of this, right? Now, Rob will do this in a sermon when it's not topical like this and he's in a context, but um, he'll, do, he'll tell you, and, but, but we need to be doing this in our small groups. And hey, what book are we looking at? When is this? Who wrote it? What, what happened just before? And then let's observe what's it saying? What's it saying? Now let's talk about what it means. And okay, then, then let's get to application. So, for gospel friends, don't let friends twist Scripture. And our conclusion is really the last point, is to be a diligent doer. Because um, let, let's be honest, it really helps when people walk their talk, right? It really helps being influenced by those who are walking their talk. Uh, it gives credibility there's a ripple effect. When you see people living for Christ, not just speaking for Christ, but living, don't you, don't you get spurred on? So um, that's why Scripture says, not just in James, uh, be doers, the word not just hears, but spurring one another on love and good deeds. And, and as you see that, I hope people come to mind that you can say, thank you, God, for that person or those people who spur me on and stoke me up to love and good deeds, and I'd encourage you to thank them directly for doing that. And finally then, I want to point us to Christ. You see, praise God that Jesus practiced what He preached. He wasn't just words. See, what Jesus did, He he didn't do in blind ignorance. He put on the apron of a slave, the master, took the the lowest slave job, a foot washer, And he did it with clear foresight. So he actually said in John 13, the devil had already prompted Judas to go betray him. And he knew the hour had come. He knew the hour had come to be betrayed. John writes, and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So he got up from the meal, took off an outer garment wrapped on the apron of a slave, and the master stooped and served those he knew in hours would betray him, would scatter and leave him alone in the garden, would deny him repeatedly. Love himself looked beyond betrayal, the abandonment, the whips, the nails. Jesus is the friend for all seasons and the friend for all sins and sinners. You see, the, the difficulty, some poet said, is not, it's not so great to die for a friend, but to find a friend worth dying for. Jesus is way, way, way better. He says, while we were enemies, or the Bible says, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. While we were unworthy, Christ died for us. 
So fix your eyes on Jesus and his forgiveness for you, and you will be a great friend. And as we look ahead in the year three questions for you, for a man to have friends, he must show himself friendly. Uh, How are you going? (laughs) Who is a gospel friend currently speaking into your life in an intentional way? And who will, with whom will you be intentional this year as a gospel friend? Uh, I've gone long, so I'll pray and seek your forgiveness for going long and hand it over to Rob. Oh, God of grace, how awesome is the truth that you died for me, for us, while we were sinners, unworthy, ungodly. What love we know and that we can be called children of God. Lord, in that truth, above all truths, stir our hearts to put aside envy and spite and malice, to forgive freely and frequently, to be wise with our words, including listening and questions, and to be Scripture students, building our lives on the truth and pointing people to the way, the truth, and the life, Christ our Lord. Help us, God, we pray. Thank you for showing us the way. Amen.